Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. Everything, good and bad, everything that happens within a family, within a church, within a community, Everything that happens is being manipulated by that person. Everything. They live it, they breathe it, they think it, they feel it, and they can't not think about how they're going to get their next victim and who they're going to use to get there. And they will use anybody and everybody. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. To find more information about the Preacher Boys podcast and upcoming documentary, visit PreacherBoysDoc.com or connect on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at PreacherBoysDoc. Now... Here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have Jimmy Hinton on the show. Finally, I've been uh, familiar with Jimmy for about about a year now since I started the show. He's one of the first people started sending my way and sending me interviews and, and information about. Um, but Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me. Can you just give a little bit of context? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a pastor myself. I've been in ministry since 2009 full-time anyway, <laughs> in 2009. And I, I'm in the churches of Christ, but certainly similar backgrounds, a similar theology to, to the Baptists. We're conservative churches. And yeah, some people may know my story and you'll probably ask some, some questions about that. But I, I had reported my own father, who was the former pastor at the church where I'm at. I reported him in 2011 and allegations came forward from my youngest sister and he's currently serving a, a life sentence in prison. My heart is is in the religious community. And obviously abuse just wreaks so much havoc on on the souls of so many individuals. Right. And we just need to talk about it and and really clamp down and resist the devil. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely a unique angle that you come at it from because obviously reporting it in a church setting is difficult, you know, reporting in general and hearing these stories is difficult, but coming at it from a perspective of family is something that you don't often, you don't often hear coming from an advocate. You usually, the people I interact with who are family members of abusers are obviously confused. They're hurt. Many have been deceived for many years. 
And mm-hmm. so a lot of times when I'm met by a family member, it's with anger for someone talking about it. It's for anger that someone's exposing it. But tell me yeah. a little bit about, obviously you've shared your story in depth, but can you just tell me how you came to know that this happened? I know it blindsided you. How did you become aware of the abuse and what was your initial kind of re- reaction to it? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a large family. We have 11 kids. I I have 10 siblings and I'm right in the middle, five older, five younger. And my youngest sister, who was an adult at the time, she was, she was 21. She scheduled an appointment to come talk to me in my office at the church building. And I could just tell by the tone whenever she called me that, that something was really wrong. And so she, she came in and she actually didn't say anything other than hi. She said hi and handed me a piece of paper. And it was an email correspondence between her and another young adult where they were asking, my sister was asking her, hey, do you remember remember that night that we had this camp out and started giving details of being sexually molested? And she said, by my father. And she said, do you remember that night? And did it happen to you too? And so the response back was, yes, uh, it did happen to me too. And I thought I was the only one. So that just, that was my introduction to finding out that the man who I loved and adored and went into ministry because of him, because of his example, that's how I found out that he was an abuser. And, right. and not only was he an abuser, but he was an abuser of his own flesh and blood. And so I knew in my mind, automatically, I, I had no reason to disbelieve my sister. And at no point ever did I doubt that there was validity in that. And I told her, I said, I believe you. And in my own mind, I thought if he can do this to his own child, his own flesh and blood, my goodness, he will stop at nothing to abuse other victims. And so in my mind, there was never a question that I was going to do anything other than report him to the police. Hmm. I never entertained any other option. And I didn't know I was the mandated reporter. That was just in my own mind, it was the right thing to do. And there had to be an investigation launched into this. So yeah, that's how I found out. There's a lot of people whose response is denial. When something like that happens, yeah. even sometimes from the side of the victim, is there's many times the victim will try to deny it or mm-hmm. try to say, oh, maybe it wasn't what I thought it was. Yeah. Why do you think you were so sure in believing and why do you think you were so instant to believe as opposed to deny? And and why do you think so many people are so quick to deny? Like this couldn't be accurate. You're misremembering. Yeah. First I'll speak to the denial part because it is incredibly common. And I think that's why so few people report even among mandated reporters, even people who've had intensive training for abuse and mandated reporting. And there, there was a, a study out it was years ago, but there was a study that came out that said something like 20% of school teachers who are mandated reporters who all go to training to talk about abuse and the reporting process and what all that looks like. It was something like 20% of them actually report whenever there there are genuine, legitimate allegations of abuse. Mm. So even in, in these environments where people are mandated by law to report the abuse of a minor child. We're not even talking adults at this point. We're talking right. minor children. Only 20% of mandated reporters report. That's a problem. I think it goes back to the denial and, and that's the strongest force through this because the human brain can't, it can't fully process 
two realities at the same time that are so diametrically opposed to each other. For example, here's a man who I never suspected that he was abusing children ever. It, it, It was never a thought. And now all of a sudden there's an allegation that's a really serious allegation. The human brain can't merge those two realities together. And so I think denial kicks in because you can't, accepting that the person is an abuser and that the allegations are true means that everything that you thought you knew about this person, whether it's your colleague or in my case, a parent, spiritual mentor, whoever it is, that means that everything that you thought you knew about this person is is fake. It's wrong. Mm. It's false. It's not true. And to accept that means that you were duped in, you know, not only the victims, but you were duped Hmm. in the most severe ways. And it's really violating Hmm. to know that you were fooled on such a deep level. I think the easier thing to do is to deny and say, maybe, maybe there was a misunderstanding somewhere. And we start to rationalize how this can't be true. So I understand it. I'm somewhat sympathetic to it, but at the same time, I'm not overly sympathetic to it because some people will pull that argument. I've consulted with churches before and they're like, you don't understand if I report this person and somewhere there was a misunderstanding, this is my very best friend. And we, we went golfing yeah. together and we, we did ministry and our kids played together for decades. And my comeback is not to be rude, but I'm not really the person to be making that argument with. I, I reported my own father and didn't hesitate to do it. Denial was really strong. In my case, it wasn't there. Denial wasn't a factor. And you asked how, and, and I don't want to sound cliche, but I really think the Holy Spirit was working in me hmm. because I'm telling you, man, out of 11 kids, I was the only one who went into ministry. Like my dad and I were super, super close. He was my absolute hero in every, every regard of the word. So for me, what happened whenever my sister reported this to me is that my brain automatically started thinking of all these really weird memories of my dad doing things that just seemed a little bit off, but were never alarming and with kids. And so my brain, I probably had in 30 seconds, a hundred memories flashed through Mm. my brain and all of a sudden it made sense. These allegations made sense and it started giving me something to hang these weird memories on to say, that's why he was always asking people to babysit their kids. That's why he was asking people if he could bathe their kids to help them out, to relieve the mothers and, and bathe their kids. All those weird things that were done in a way that wasn't that weird. It just wasn't weird. My dad was not a creepy guy at all. You know, he, he looked like you and I. Yeah. So all of a sudden, everything started to make sense. And for me, I never hesitated to believe my sister. Never. Yeah. It's almost sounds like what you're saying is that denial is something that we tend to do the day to day with abusers. We don't, we miss those things that in hindsight sure. look weird, but we deny them in the moment because who wants to assume yes. that a pastor offering to babysit your kids to help give you a break is weird. That's, that's a kind thing to do to, to say, can I, can I, Oh, your kids can hang out at my house. That's a nice thing to do. And so we tend to deny any gut feeling that we have in those moments, or we don't even get that gut feeling because like you make a good point Mm -hmm. in everything you talk about, 
everything is a fabrication. There's so much deceit yeah. and layers upon layer of deceit. I, I was reading a book just the other day and it was talking about, specifically talking about rape. And it was saying a lot of times people will use rape myths. So the idea of victim blaming or things like that. And it said that abusers will use it to minimize their own egregiousness of their action. But also yeah. victims or people who have been hurt by it will use the same rape myths to deny their like their vulnerability. So it basically says mm -hmm. people, like you said, people who are sitting there and going, man, I, was, I spent 20 years knowing this person, 30 years knowing this person, and I missed it. Admitting that is, feels really heavy. And, and it also, yeah. I, I think it can also shatter our bubble a little bit. I know for me, when I first realized yeah. this happened in my denomination, I was like, is every pastor doing this? Is this something mm -hmm. my parents are like, who does this? Everybody does this. Yeah. And yeah, it's a pretty shocking moment. And I know obviously there were severe ramifications like mentally and emotionally, mm. what you were in ministry, you'd followed in your father's footsteps. He's a spiritual hero. In addition to just being a hero in general, did it have any impact on your faith initially? Did it make you question your veracity of your faith or the reality of what you were doing? Yeah, it did. Because, uh, and I wrote about this, not to put a plug here for my book. We were just plug talking away. about it. But good. Yeah. So the book, I wrote a memoir uh, called The Devil Inside. And the full title is The Devil Inside, How My Minister Father Molested Kids in Our Home and Church for Decades and How I Finally Stopped Them. So in the memoir, I talk about this faith crisis that I had because it, it, it was like all these identity crises started hitting me all at once. Everything I thought I knew about my dad, that, well, that obviously blew up in a second. But then I started questioning my childhood. Was I abused and I didn't know it? Right. Because my sister, she had repressed memories and didn't even remember the abuse until very recently before she disclosed yeah. it to me. So it's not like she was living with these horrid memories and flashbacks and all that stuff. She had no memories. And so that starts to make you wonder, was I abused by him? And I just don't remember it. Are there going to be memories now that start to surface? All the happy memories that, that started coming to the surface. I was like, were those, was any of that real? So there's this identity crisis within you from just your inner self, but then there's a spiritual identity crisis. Everything I thought I knew about God, most of that was taught by my own father, by an abuser by a man who used God to manipulate his victims to get sex from them. In my mind, I, I, what I really was wrestling with is I would literally die to protect any one of those victims that my dad abused. I would die before allowing any of them to be abused. And, and if I felt that way, what about God? And so I just, I had this anger towards God and I was like, if you're half the God you claim to be, where were you when all, when my dad was raping these little kids, his preference was age three to 11 at three years old. You can't even tie your own shoes. And my dad was raping these little kids in really gruesome ways. So in my mind, I was like, God, where were you? You're a coward. And I remember I was literally screaming at God in, in my living room. I just had this complete meltdown and I was like, you're a fraud, you're fake. And I just, I, I still had to preach every Sunday. We're a small church and I'm it. I'm the only, I'm the only pastor. It's not like we have people on reserve that 
when I'm having a crisis, I can just call on people and they, they'll preach for me. There was that issue. And then we found out that my dad had abused victims up to the time of his arrest in my congregation. So there was that layer of trauma. And now there are faces that I'm looking at that I know my dad abused who are severely traumatized. None of this made sense. And God, who was this loving God, who was like suave and super cool. And my dad always preached this God. And now it makes sense why, but he was this God who just forgave anything. And there was no sin that was too great that God would just wrap you up. And it was never a question. You didn't have to do a whole lot. You just had to say you're sorry. And God just wiped it all away. He just forgot about it. And so that was really ingrained in me, and, and that didn't make sense anymore. I had to deconstruct everything I thought I knew about God and then start to build back up again with a fresh lens, looking at Scripture, saying, okay, who was God? So I never stopped believing in God, but I went through a period where I was incredibly angry with them. And in fact, I asked, I asked my leaders at church, I was like, can I have my 30 minutes with God publicly? Can I just, can I yell at him in front of the congregation? Because I, right now, like, that's what I need. I just need, I need to shout him down for what he allowed. And they gave me permission to do it. And that, that was the turning point where both myself and the congregation started to heal because everybody else was asking the same question. They just were too afraid to ask it. So, yeah, I found out through all this that God's foundation is righteousness and justice. Psalm mm -hmm. eighty nine fourteen. I never knew that. I was never taught that. I was taught it's all about love, love, love. God is love. Okay, yeah, that's true, but that's not his foundation. Mm -hmm. Psalm eighty nine fourteen. righteousness and justice are your foundation. Steadfast love and faithfulness flow from it. That that's like a complete game changer. Yeah. And we've been getting the foundation wrong and people are still getting the foundation wrong, which is why we excuse abuse away. It's why we churches embrace abusers and kick out their victims. In what sane world does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's a totally different picture of God. And, and like you said, everything, one thing you hit on over and over again is the idea that everything is positioned by an abuser to make it happen. The, there's grooming of yeah. the victims. There's grooming of the parents of the victims. There's grooming of the church. Yeah. And even you said down to the picture of God that they paint from the pulpit is mm -hmm. all with whether subconscious or conscious, we're still, it's frustrating reading. I've read through predators. I've read through men too. And you're trying to understand the mind of these yeah. people, but it truly is. It's this orchestrated series of events, even the sloppiest predators, the ones who are, who are disorganized, there's yeah. a, a methodological kind of approach to doing this. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is interesting. It's interesting listening to pastors preach. And I've seen the two, there's really two types that I've seen. There's ones who deflect. So you have ones who are very aggressively preaching on something very far removed from what they're participating in. Mm -hmm. Or there's people who, like you said, and I know you talked talk to Sandy Phillips Kirkham, same thing really cool, hip. God is, God is cool. He's okay with what you want to do. Yep. And they forget that righteousness. And yeah, I love that you hit on that, the foundation of who God is. And I think of Isaiah six come undone, like in the presence of God and his holiness, I'm literally like the idea of falling apart in his presence. 
it's such yeah. a different picture to to look at it through. I am curious yeah. as a pastor who's obviously had to deal with this and you missed it as well. And and that's again, obviously that's not your fault. That's something where someone who's good at deceiving deceived you. Sure. But was there also a period where you felt maybe a guilt as like a shepherd saying, how did I miss this and let this into my congregation? Was there that, that period as well? Or yeah, oddly enough, I never, if, if I felt guilt, it wasn't a consuming guilt. Certainly there's that in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, I failed to recognize it. I failed to see it. And therefore I failed to protect these people whose lives are forever changed. There, there is no going back. Once somebody strips your innocence away in such gruesome ways, there's never any going back from that. I wasn't consumed with guilt. I was consumed with obsession to understand what it was about us. Because if there's one thing that really peeves me off, it's having people pull one over on me. Yeah, And I, th- I think a lot of us are just wired that way. So in my mind, I was like, all right, I got to get inside of his head and understand not why he did it because so many people are obsessed with the why. Yeah. Like, like they'll ask questions that ultimately you're asking why. Was your dad abused when he was a kid? You know what my answer is? Who cares? Maybe he wasn't. It depends on who you ask because he's told people both sides of that. But it doesn't matter because abuse victims who I know, and I've met thousands of them, would lay down on a set of railroad tracks and do everything they could to stop that train before they'd allow another kid to mm. experience what they experienced. So, you know, it, it, they know what it feels like to be manipulated and broken and stripped of their innocence. And so the vast majority, not all of them, but the vast majority of abuse victims, of survivors, are very protective. So for yeah. me, it wasn't a matter of why, what made him this way. I don't know. Read Anna Salter. You read her book. Mm-hmm. Wow. She gives one of the most brutally honest answers. She's like, at the end of the day, we don't know what makes people this way. No. Um, that's an honest answer. That's an endless abyss if we're asking the why. For me, I wanted to know how. H- how did he do it? Because if I know how he did it, how he was able to keep all of us blind to the abuse when he was literally doing it in front of us. I, I specialize in research and abuse in plain sight because of letters that my dad wrote me where he was mockingly saying, not only did I abuse the kids, but I was doing it right in front of you. He was writing about that long before we found out about Larry Nasser, who was abusing his victims yeah. while talking to mom and dad, having a casual conversation in the same room as he's digitally penetrating them in both the vaginas and, and the anus. He was doing both of it mm. while talking to their parents. And that's not uncommon with abusers. It's incredibly common. So for me, I wanted to know how, and I wanted to know, I wanted to know not necessarily so much about the abusers. Like I started on that path and that's a really complex and dark, just gross thing to even think about. So I started to turn that around and I was like, instead of looking for pedophiles, it's like, looking for a needle in a haystack. I want to know how my dad and people like him, how they see us. Mm. So does that make sense? Like yeah. I wanted to spin the camera around and, and instead of looking for Waldo in a sea of people, I wanted to become Waldo and start looking for everybody else and saying, okay, how does Waldo hide so well? 
Yeah. How does how does Waldo see people whenever he's sitting there right in front of a sea of people and he's just chilling out, hiding out? So when you think that way, you start seeing deception in real time. You start seeing manipulative people. Doesn't mean that you can point to somebody and say 100% they're an abuser. Yeah. But you can see highly manipulative people when you would never be able to see them otherwise. Hmm. Because you see that they're actively I use the term testing. They're testing people constantly. And a lot of these tests are benign Mm -hmm. and they're intentionally benign. Yeah. It's not like they just go up and start groping and grabbing kids right in front of people. There's this process and they're constantly testing the child, but they're also testing the adults. And certainly they're grooming, but, but a lot of what they're doing is primarily they're testing people. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating and scary thing when you look at these cases. I recently uh, interviewed someone, similar story. It started with, can I give you a ride to church? It started mm-hmm. with small things. How much time can I get mm-hmm. away? How much time do people not ask where we go? Do people not? And it yeah. is, it's just these little, the, the goalposts move ever so slightly. And then by the time yeah. abuse happens, the victim is so shocked because they've been you know, programmed to trust this person like a family member, or in some cases it is a family member. The family says, oh, it would never be them. They've spent a year just taking them on trips. Nothing's ever happened. And it's a really, yeah, it's startling. When you start looking at how they view us, it changes the game quite a bit. And you can, even if, yeah. again, you never want to point at some random person and say, I know they're an abuser. Like I know, sure, but you can identify it. And literally one of, one of the victims I interviewed just said, if one person had come into a room where we were and had asked, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. It could have changed the whole course of their story, but, but nobody yeah, and, wants to ask. Yeah. Not only that, but that what I learned scientifically is that a lot of victims are asking those questions. Like, why did nobody ever step in? And a lot of victims, adult survivors have this deep seated um, anger mm. and sometimes even hatred towards their parents because they were like, they were standing there watching this happen to me and they didn't do anything to right. stop it. They never said a word. Well, the reality is 99% of the time, it's not that they're seeing the abuse. It's yeah. that it's happening right in front of that parent. Yeah. But the abuser is using really sophisticated techniques and they're keeping that abuse blind, like Larry Nasser did. None of those parents, there were like something like over 150 parents right. that we know of that were in the room with their child as they number. were being abused. Yeah. yeah. And probably more than that. Mm-hmm. The point is, it's not like they were standing there watching it happening, given the thumbs up. It's that they literally did not see it. And yeah. there's really clear science behind that. So, what I wanted to do is, is really, really understand abuse in plain sight and how we miss it and, mm. and what techniques abusers are using to keep us blind to it. Because for one, it's incredibly validating to the survivor to say, it's not that your parents didn't care. It's that they right. didn't see it because mm. the child's not thinking, okay, my abuser is using 17 different sophisticated techniques right now to keep the abuse blind to my parents. Like kids don't have that degree of comprehension. And so in the child's mind and the abuser knows it in the child's mind, they're screaming out saying, mom and dad, why aren't you doing anything to stop this man? Mm -hmm. And that's all intentional by the abuser. And it keeps that keeps them silent, really understanding 
how they do it and what techniques they're doing and how they test before they get to the point where they're abusing helps us to intervene much faster than the traditional, these are the grooming signs and they're handing out candy and lollipops and money and putting kids in their laps and being really gross. And they're obviously gross. If somebody's at that point, they've been abusing that child for a long time. Yeah. So I wanted to come in and say, how do we stop it way before it even gets to the point that they're abusing that child? And, And it's not, that hard to do. Once you learn, once you learn these techniques, it's really not that difficult to do. Yeah. It's not a hundred percent, but you're not always going right. to be able to do it, but you have a much better success rate. Yeah. And just knowing to look for it puts you ahead of most people. Most people aren't even, yeah. it's not even on their radar. My mm-hmm. wife and I were talking about that. One of the churches we were attending, I, I was just like, I don't feel comfortable putting our daughter in nursery. Like I know they have yeah. some safeguards and one of the pastors there was like, oh, I put my kids in. And I was just like, yeah, but that's, I have way Mm -hmm. too much understanding of this world to like feel comfortable doing this. And just that right there, I'm like, there's some people who just don't think in those ways. They think very broadly to, I won't let my kid walk through the neighborhood by themselves, but that's not where most abuse happens. It happens in Right. Quote unquote, safe environments. But yeah, as you started studying this and trying to understand the process, I know I know you uh, describe like a game of cat and mouse with your dad, trying to ask him questions, get to the mm-hmm. bottom of it. I want to rewind back to the first conversation you had with him once this came out, once you reported and you were able to sit down and try to get a hold on this for the first time. What was that conversation like? And, and what do you mean when you say a game of cat and mouse asking these questions? Yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't really recall the first conversation because with my dad, from the very beginning, when he was locked up, he was in county jail for about a year before he Mm. was sentenced to then went to state prison. I visited him faithfully once a week. Mm. We had a 30 minute, it was behind the glass, the glass wall. And then we were on the telephones. I visited him in person for that solid year. Mm. During that whole year, he didn't know that mom and I were the ones who reported him. Wow. He thought that one of his victims had rolled on him. And so I started seeing something in him that I'd never seen before because the facade starts to, to, once they're caught, the facade starts coming down and you start seeing the true person. And he was obsessed with his discovery package. The only thing that made sense in my mind was that he wanted that discovery package so that he knew, he wanted to know how he got caught. Who was Mm. it? who rolled on him and where did he mess up? Because this is the case nearly 100% of the time. Abusers don't get, they don't get softer in prison, they get smarter. So when they get out and they're all, they find Jesus in prison. By the way, that's, a, that's common slang in prison. There's a term among abusers. If you don't have Jesus, get Jesus when they're in prison. They all tell each other that. Why? Because churches are super easy targets. So when they get out, they can go right back to abusing again. So I had, I had these con- just basic conversations with him over a year. And I noticed, I started noticing these patterns. He wasn't asking anything about his victims. He would never mention his victims. And, and some of those were family members. So it was all just kind of small talk. But then he would get really animated when he talked about his discovery package. And he's, I've... I wrote the assistant attorney, like he got energized. He's like, I, I wrote the, the district attorney. And then I copied the attorney general's office in Harrisburg on the letter against the advice of my attorney. I did that. 
he was obsessed with getting this discovery package. So on one of my last visits with him in county jail before he got sentenced, he he looked up and he smiled and he's, by the way, he said, I got my discovery package. Mm. And I knew then I was like, he read that it was, it was mom and I who reported him. And he said, he's like, yep, I know you're, you reported me. Mm. And at this point I'm thinking, oh crap, he's going to hire a hitman. I'm dead meat. And he smiles and he's, and it was really insincere and I could tell it, but he was like, I want to thank you because I was doing things trying to get caught because I, I knew that's the only way that I would get stopped. And so I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was really insincere and creepy. There, there were those conversations. Then when he went to prison, we were writing letters back and forth. And I would just ask him point blank questions. And I was like, we can small talk or you can actually help protect victims from people like you. And so I started asking him really specific questions about how he was able to fool people. And I knew from reading Anna Salter's book that abusers love talking about themselves and they love reliving the abuse. And that's the price that you pay knowing that he's reliving this as fantasies. But it's the only way that I could really understand what was going on in his mind. And so when I talk about the cat and mouse, those were visits where I was in person with him. Hmm. And it, if once you learn how abusers think, everything that comes out of their mouth is BS. Yeah. Everything, everything. Hmm. And I knew this because I was getting letters from my dad and I know my dad really well. So he was, he would write me a letter, for example, then somebody else in the family, a letter. And one day I got a call from one of my brothers and he was like, I under, I understand that what dad did was really bad. It was wrong. Like I would never justify anything that he did. I believe he belongs in prison, but did you know that he's being threatened to get raped every day? And he fears for his life constantly. And like, he goes on and on dad, he's in this deep depression. I was like, what's the date on that letter? Because dad always puts dates. He always dates his letters. He reads the date. And I was like, interesting. He wrote me a letter the same day. Would you like to compare notes? Mm. <laughs> because my letter was the exact opposite. Like prison is great. Like I'm the old head on the block and mentoring all these young inmates and the guards are kind to me. And I was visiting him. So I knew that was true. Like the guards love him in there. And so I learned that if you're going to ask an abuser a straightforward question, you're going to get an intentionally wrongful answer back. They're going to lead you down a path just for the fun of it. And so I started questioning a lot of the research when I'm reading books on, on pedophilia. I'm like, <laughs> I know my dad really well. And I've talked to a lot of abusers now over the years. And this information is intentionally misleading. So I found that the, the way to get the most truthful answer out of my dad is to manipulate him. Mm. And he knows after a while that I'm manipulating him and he's manipulating me. And you can see him like light up, like he likes that mental challenge. And then once, once you can rope him into this cat and mouse, he's actually giving valuable information. And it's this really weird process because I've asked him point blank questions 
And he'll either just completely ignore it or, or he'll just give me like this really crazy off the wall answer. And I'm like, that's not even close to the truth. Yeah. But then when I manipulate him and, and we have this back and forth, I get really invaluable information back. When's the, so sorry. being able to know the abuser and have a relationship with him and know when, know when he's being deceptive and know when he's being half truthful, you can read between the lines and, and analyze all of that. What, what was one of your big, obviously now learning this, like what, what have been some of your biggest takeaways from those kind of correspondences back and forth? Yeah. The biggest takeaway is that regardless of what we think we know about being able to read people, if you strip all of the emotional attachments we have away from people, which is what I had to do to report my own dad. Like I had to pretend I didn't know the man. So I've gotten really good at putting up this protective wall mm-hmm. where I don't feel emotions when I'm with my dad, hmm. like any. And I'm able to just listen to the information and kind of sort the facts out. And very ironically, what I learned is that's how abusers treat us. And so they're able to completely strip away any emotional attachment, even to their own children, to their own spouses, to, to anybody, you name it. They literally have no emotional attachment to us. Hmm. And everything to them is a game. And everything to them is just using people as a pawn to get what they want. And when you realize that, you start viewing people differently, not as suspect, but I'm able to, I'm able to walk into a room and kind of put that emotional cloak over me. And I'm able to just look around a room and, and assess and be like, okay, what's happening in this room right now? Who's touching who? Or who's touching whom? How are they doing it? What's the intention behind the touch? Conversations, are they information mining? Are they using techniques to get information out of this per- person? Are they being manipulative? If so, what techniques are they using? What specific techniques are they using? So when I walk into a room, that's what's going on in, in, in my mind. And you know, I guess it's both a blessing and a curse, but what happens repeatedly whenever I go and visit churches is one of the things that they'll say, is there anybody who should be on our radar? Hmm. And, and within five minutes, of being in a jam-packed room with people, I can point around and say, not always, but usually there's somebody who I say, that person should be on your radar and here's why. Here's what I witnessed. Here's what they were doing. And it's just an objective way of looking at people and looking at the facts that are in front of you. And then for abusers, that's how they get away with it because they're not hesitant. They're not like tiptoeing into a, into a room. Like, I hope I get away with it this time. You know, mm. Like they just walk in and they take what they want because mm. they know how. Yeah, They know how to read people. They know how to find the most vulnerable people. They know how to match a vulnerable child with a vulnerable adult. And they know how to manipulate them and get away with it. You, you mentioned the cutting off the emotional attachment. It's a game. Do you feel like... Obviously this gets into that why conversation, I think somewhat, but do you think looking back, obviously it's confusing thinking like, okay, I have all these memories, positive memories, all these things that are hard to categorize. 
when you look back, mm-hmm. do you think that it was a game from day one? Like as far as long as you've known your dad, do you think it was because if someone sits down, they have kids, they have a wife, they have was all of that pieces of this elaborate puzzle, or do you think it was something switched? Maybe not knowing what it is, something switched at yeah. some point through his life. Yeah, no, I do think I do think that all of it was um, part of his plan. And mom has talked about this in our podcast. In one of the early episodes, she said she remembers the point where she knew that my dad had her when they were dating, when it was really early on. And he literally pointed to her and he's, that's the one I'm going to marry. Hmm. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like this romantic love. Like he just, he was swept off his feet. It was like, he looked at her and, and was like, she's going to be mine, like a possessive. Yeah. And I think there's this weird mix because I, I think the good things that he did for us kids I think that was real. I think that was legitimate, but everything good and bad, everything that happens within a family, within a church, within a community, everything that happens is being manipulated by that person. Everything. They live it, they breathe it, they think it, they feel it, and they can't not think about how they're going to get their next victim and who they're going to use to get there. And they will use anybody and everybody. So yeah, it's... I, I do think there's legitimate kindness to a degree, right. but even that legitimate kindness towards his own children was being used to use other people. You mentioned in one of your, in one of your talks, kindness is something that it's a discipline. And so it's yeah. something that people can learn and abusers learn really well. And yeah, I think this yeah. is something that now 120 episodes into the show, like I'm sitting there going like, abusers are not the creepy sweaty guy walking in the back of the auditorium. They can be, obviously there's always exceptions to the rule, but it's usually the guy who's the center of the room loud and and exciting Mm -hmm. and people want to go get away with him and hang out with him. And the kids are always going to his house because he's the cool dad or the cool youth pastor. And it's such a, that's such a paradigm shift. And I think that's such a, that's such a vital thing. I think you're doing a great job when I listen to you talk about it is not just pointing to what we tend to do in church culture, which is they were a good man. They had so much going for them. They were, it's, it's the same way that the predator thinks about themselves. They are Mm -hmm. this and this, all these positive things. But what you really focus in on is that this is not someone stumbling and falling into something. This is something that yeah. is meticulously crafted. I, I, I got into yeah. a, I got into a pretty, I would say heated, pretty heated discussion with someone that, that I know really well. And, and we got into this conversation about someone and they committed, they were with this girl, 15 years old. He was 30 years old. He used his position as a youth pastor to, to do this for several months. Mm-hmm. And the argument that I was getting in to someone with was like, why don't you leave this alone? Cause he's out and about now. Why don't you leave this alone? This was a long time ago. Do you want me to broadcast when you've fallen into sin or you've done this? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was just like, okay, sit, take, for example, you're sitting in your, you're sitting in your office, you're working with a, a single woman as an adult. And the one thing leads to another, we do something inappropriate together. The two consenting adults, that's yeah. a mistake. It's a misstep, a big mistake, not denying yeah, that. Sure. But for someone to to use their position of power and influence to manipulate everyone around them, get in, literally some go into the pastorate yeah. for this purpose, it's a much different thing. That's not falling. It's literally climbing into that right. position. And 
each step is an intentional step to that place. And so, yeah, you have to, I get maybe, maybe it's been 15 years since something happened last, but it's 15 years since something happened last that you know of, or, and it's 15, that's right. It's 15 years. And and one shocking thing I just read recently was that the chance of recidivism with sex offenders increases like exponentially after the 15 year mark. So some will literally prey on someone the first time, sit dormant and then commit a crime again, several years down the road. And it is. Yeah, there's no way to know if someone's truly rehabilitated. If that is even a phrase you can use in that realm. What's interesting? I did a series of interviews in one of our local prisons, actually the prison that Jerry Sandusky is in. Oh, wow! I had done I had done a series of interviews with with different staff in in there, and I asked the one gentleman. I said, "When you are." You have these people who come before you and they're they're trying to get parole and they're obviously that they're working you, they're working the parole board. If there's one concrete thing that you could say, absolutely one I've seen this with one hundred percent of every sex offender that has come into this prison. One hundred percent. Is there one thing that you could hang on the wall and say, This never changes ever? He didn't even hesitate. He said, yeah, consistency or compliance. Hmm. He's like, they are the most compliant people. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Let me get the door for you. Whatever you need, I'll do it for you. He said, they are incredibly compliant. He said, they never cause problems in prison ever. And part of that's probably for their own safety. But I think the bigger part is they just, they're trying to get out. And so they want to win the favor of everybody. And so I had asked another person, this wasn't in, in an interview, but she's like very high up, works in our governor's office. And I said, how do you know when the SOAB, the Sex Offender Assessment Board, when the SOAB does these exit interviews and you send people, these sex offenders out in the street, how can you gauge whether they're actually abiding by the law and they're not producing more victims. Is there any way to, to track them realistically, like not on paper, but is there any way to really track them and say, we know that they're not producing victims? And she said, I'll never forget this. She goes, to a degree we can tell. She said, the ones who we really can tell are, are making a difference and they're trying to change their life and they're trying to do right are the ones who are compliant. I about had a heart attack. Mm. I was like, so your gauge to test recidivism and to test whether you think sex offenders are on the up and up and that they're, they're really doing well once they're released from prison is compliance. The very thing that they're using to man- manipulate you to get out. So- For me, it's really troubling because if you listen to churches, what do they talk about? Any rule that we put in place, we have these covenant agreements, which are total garbage. I've not seen a single one that's even halfway decent, but they're like, we put this in paper and they're not allowed in the children's wing and they signed it. They're really compliant. And I'm like, that's the one who would be at the top of my, the top of my radar. Like he, this guy would have a big red bubble around him and it's saying danger. Mm. Yeah. So it, it, it's all interwoven and it, it's all interconnected and the abuser knows it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's no, it, it seems to me like I, and again, I had the same argument and this comes from my background. I know I've talked about on the show before, but this guy I was talking about who, who came to our, our church and school, his initial, when he left his previous job and came to ours, his initial action, nobody knew what had happened. He totally had a clean start there. His initial yeah. thing was to volunteer, to teach sixth grade Sunday school and was to lead music and to yeah. get involved. And once it came out, he was forced to step down. He's now back doing, now he's back on stage. He's not teaching Sunday school, but he's back on the platform every Sunday and is given that credibility there. And I just, I look at that and say, what if no one, and it was me, but what if no one had Googled him Mm -hmm. and found that article? What if nobody had researched who he was? And I'm not confident saying that he would have taken a position at sixth grade Sunday school class and never acted again, and never would have taken advantage of that ignorance. And so when I sit there and say, yeah, it's been, I I just look at that moment and it's something that hit me after doing the show. I'd never even thought about it like that. I just thought, man, it's good that they pulled him out of there. But I was like, what was the intention of doing that? Because if you're looking at it, like when we deal with sin, you're looking at church environment. I want to get into this just really quick here at the end. But when you think of sin, when you're truly repentant, we talk about that all the time. Can abusers change? Can it be repentance? When you repent of sin, you flee from opportunity to commit that sin again. You know, that's, yeah. you flee opportunity. And, and time and again, I question this abuser specifically, why go to a church that has a school connected to it? Why go to a church that even has children? Why not go to a church on the corner with like three 70-year-old people that all worship together? And the reality is there's that window of opportunity. And I guess my last question to you, just from the side of clergy and knowing that, yes, we believe the Bible. Like I'm a believer myself. I I believe that people can repent Mm -hmm. of sin, egregious sins. People can experience salvation and the power of the gospel, but also we have to be safe. And again, you're dealing with manipulative people, you're dealing with with abusers, but I am curious about this question. So for those who do go through prison, they serve their time, they appear to be, and again, keyword appear to be trying mm-hmm. to change. If they came to you and said, look, I, ne- I want to become a part of a church, or I want to become a, I want to follow Christ. I want to be a part of this. As a pastor, what would you recommend to churches who are wanting to minister to these people but don't want to open the door for them to come into their actual body of the church or or don't want to open the door for them to have access to victims? Because that's a question that comes up a lot. And uh, I know what my kind of suggestion is, but I'm curious what yours would be. Yeah. So a couple of things. One, I I always point back to John the Baptist. Uh, John Mm. the Baptist didn't tell people to say that you've repented. He didn't even tell people to repent. John the Baptist he comes out of the gate saying, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. Jesus talked a lot about fruit, poisonous fruit and uh, good fruit. Bad tree can't produce good fruit and a good tree can't produce bad fruit, vice versa. You're going to know, you're going to know that tree by its fruit. Hmm. So my first question is don't have a meeting with them and ask if they're repentant. Because of course they're going to say yes, and they're going to cry, and they're going to they're going to say, "Oh, I just you bringing it, just you bringing this up, brings back all the guilt and the shame that I've been wrestling with for all these years." And they're going to give the sob story of their life. So my recommendation is this: strip all the emotion away. Forget about the tears. Forget about forget even about what you're hearing, at least on the surface. 
and start saying, okay, what are the fruits of repentance specific to that sin and sin slash crime? And that's going to be different for each sin. The fruits of repentance for a gossip are going to be different than the fruits of repentance for a rapist or a child rapist. Hmm. So I'm going to start looking at the fruit. Okay. Knowing what we know about abusers, if this is a sexual predator, if this is a sex, a registered sex offender and they're on the sex offender registry, are they willing to print that off and hand that out to everybody and plaster that Hmm. all over the place and say, I am right now required by law every six months to re-register. And it's a felony offense just to not update my information. It's that important to the government. So it should be that important for your church to know that I'm on the registry. That's number one. Number two, and I agree with you, are they going to stay away from children? Uh, Are they going to say, will you provide, I know it's a huge inconvenience, but will you provide a worship experience for me that does not involve any children whatsoever. And I'm not talking about the children's wing. That still blows my mind that people are like, we're keeping them out of the one place where kids are actually secure. They're in rooms. They have Mm -hmm. teachers and helpers. And if you're going to let a sex offender go anywhere in the church building, let them go in the children's wing. That's one place you should allow them to go. It's the other part of the building where children are unsupervised and they're running in and out of bathrooms alone. And they're, they're running out in the parking lot unsupervised and they have unhindered access to the kids. Hmm. By the way, I'm not suggesting that we allow sex offenders in the children's wing. I'm, (laughs) I'm just, I'm making the point. They're more secure in the children's wing and churches are like, they're not allowed in the children's wing. And I'm like, so what? Yeah. they're still around children. Yeah. So the question is, as a fruit of repentance, are they abstaining from children completely? Yeah. That means they're not even going to, they're not even going to be in the presence of children anywhere so far as they can help it. Hmm. Are they going to relinquish their internet smartphones that have cameras. There's a lot of voyeuristic behavior that happens with sex offenders. Excuse me. The upskirt shots and all that stuff, pretending to text while they're taking pictures and videos. That's the stuff that's happening when you're letting sex offenders in the churches. Guaranteed. Are they completely transparent with what they did? And will they allow or suggest that the leadership pull up court dockets? Are they going to be honest about which are the um, crimes that they had waived as part of a plea deal. Yeah. My dad's case, he had three charges. He had 197 charges that were waived. They vanished. They went bye-bye as part of a plea deal. That's incredibly common with abusers. So right. does the sex offender say, you need to look up my record and not take my word for what I said I did? Hmm. Because the story is always... Oh my gosh, this was, man, so far, so far in the past, this happened 30 years ago and I'm having trouble even recalling the victim's name. It was just one time. It was just one instance and I was drunk and I let the alcohol get the best of me. Like I can script the story that every church leader has heard from a sex offender who gets out of prison. I can script it. Yeah. As a fruit of repentance, 
are they being completely honest and saying, you know what, I'm going to shut my mouth because I lost all credibility the minute I raped a child. Yeah. I'm not even going to tell you what I did. I want you to look up my records. That's a fruit of repentance. Mm. That's somebody who's humble. That's somebody who's transparent. That's somebody who wants accountability. Yeah. And you um, don't see so, that very often. <laughs> no, I've never ever. seen it. I've never seen it either. Yeah. But. And I've been doing this for almost a decade. I've never witnessed it. In fact, it's always the exact opposite. It's that they want. It's, it's crying know, in the office. And, yeah. Yep. And they want anonymity and leaders, church leaders usually give it to them. Church leaders should be warned to never circumvent the law and hide that somebody is on the sex offender registry. You don't have that. No. They're on the sex offender registry for a reason. And it's informative. It's not so people can stalk them and harass them and, right. you know, so they can know tar and feather their house. It's to be informed so that parents mm. can have a standing chance. And, and I make this point, I'll end with this, but I make this point because some people still will be like, isn't that unfair? Because the Bible talks about people who sinned more need more mercy. What about grace? And what about mercy and forgiveness? And they start throwing cliche Bible verses out there. And I'm like, what about all the verses? And there are lots of them that say deceptive and manipulative people you should avoid, have nothing to do with them. Mm, yeah. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 13, he said, evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. It's that self-deception. These are people who call themselves Christians and Paul says, have nothing to do with them. Stay away from them. They're warped. They're twisted. So there is, we have to at least acknowledge that there's a certain class of people who bear the name of Christian who are either not really Christian or they're just incredibly manip manipulative and the Bible says, stay away from them. So here's why I'm hammering this point home for the sex offenders. Again, you're exactly right. They didn't fall into sin. They didn't just wind up at the wrong place at the wrong time. They 10 times out of 10, they produced multiple victims, did it multiple times. They fooled people. They lied to people. They masqueraded always. They pretended to be somebody they were not in order to gain access and to keep that hidden. It's not that they thought about sexualizing a child, which is bad enough. It's gross. It's dark. It's disgusting. It's twisted. It's sick. It's broken. It's wrong. It's not that these people thought about it. And went home and pardoned the, the bluntness, but went home and masturbated to their fantasies. They actually carried the crime through yeah. and they did it. They raped a child over and over and over again. They did it. Yeah. So by definition, regardless of what any paperwork says, they are a threat to children. They are a current threat to children because yeah. they are fully capable. If they were capable of uh, going through with it once before, they're fully capable of doing it again. 
Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point to, to leave on. I think it's going to be good for pastors to hear that as they consider it in their own congregations. I know I've gotten in plenty of debates about this topic, but I really do. I, I appreciate all the work you're doing on this. And I'm hoping around the time Absolutely. this releases, we'll get to send some people over to your book. So hopefully by the time this releases, you can go check the yeah. link in the show notes and go pick up a copy of that. But Jimmy, just thank you so much for for coming on, sharing your story and just for being willing to spend so much time on this topic. It, it really means a lot to me. Absolutely. And I know it does to my audience as well. Yeah. Eric, thank you a million for, for having a podcast on this subject. <laughs> this is, it is not a subject that people are like, man, this is going to energize me and get me going. And yeah, you know, definitely not. how exciting to talk about abuse in the church. Like it is exhausting. It's, it's emotionally exhausting. It's like you said, you get into debates with people. People are always going to fight you on this. They're going to say that you're being unfair. You're being unkind. You're not being Christ. So yeah, from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank you for, for being another voice who's out there that is really looking into this and saying, we, we have got to do something to stop it. We've got to resist you. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.